It's good to be with you this morning. Oh, please be seated. Yeah, yeah. And there may be more marbles coming this way, I'm not sure. Um, well, as we come together to listen and reflect on God's word, would you pray with me? Gracious Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. So some long readings today in the lectionary. Some difficult readings, maybe. If you've been following the lectionary, if you've been paying attention the last weeks, few weeks, if you've been here, um, you may be aware that we've been in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John for four weeks. It's a long chapter. We're at the end of it today, finally. Um, and even before this, we were in the Gospel of Mark, which carries the same story. Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 and all that it means. It's, I almost want to apologize uh, for the length of the readings, um, but in the second century, a Christian philosopher and eventually martyr, Ju uh, Justin, Justin Martyr, Saint Justin, uh, describes in his first apology, his first defense of Christianity. Um, you know, I was gonna take this mask off so you can hear me better, let me do that. Um, he describes a Christian worship service, and he says on Sunday, those who are called Christians gather together, and they listen to the memoirs of the apostles and the prophets for as long as time permits. And then the person who's leading instructs and gives prayers as he's able. And I think it's, uh, so we're in that same sort of company. And I love that phrase, as long as time permits. We're not rushed. We're gonna to listen to the scriptures. I also like this phrase, uh, to the best of his ability. So, you know, it's a low bar for the preacher, I hope. Um, but to the best of our ability, let's listen to what uh, the Lord would say to us here from John 6. So, the story begins at the beginning of the chapter. We have to get to frame the, the, the at the end of the chapter, we have a controversy, a question, and an answer. But before we get there, we have to remember the context, which is that Jesus has fed about 5,000 people, including men, women, and children, with bread in the desert. Miraculously, he's fed them. And we get this story in all four Gospels, all four accounts of the New Testament of Jesus' life. Uh, but John is interesting. You know, if you've, if you've ever read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know that Jesus operates in about 10 verse segments. He goes and he does something and it takes about five or six lines or maybe just a few more and then he goes on to do something else. He offers some pithy sayings, blessed are the poor in spirit, and then he moves on. But in John it's much different. Jesus has the mic for a lot longer. And there are long discourses that explain what has gone on, what Jesus has said, what it means, sometimes repetitive. We found this in John 6. The story is that Jesus has fed the hungry in the wilderness. And it takes about 14 verses at the beginning of the chapter to tell this story. And then there's a brief interlude where Jesus walks on water across the Sea of Galilee. And then we get to what John really wants to tell us about, which is back to the story of the feeding <clears throat> and what it means. And then John takes 47 verses to explain for us what um, this feeding in the wilderness means. It's remarkable. When he begins the conversation that we're going to hear the end of, it starts like this. 
When the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, that is, on the side of the lake that they were at, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him there on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Do you hear the language of request? The language of seeking. They were seeking Jesus. Jesus said, you're seeking me. Then they ask him for something. I think this is a profound motif that matters for what's going on here, for why John wants to include for us this long conversation with Jesus. People are seeking him. They're seeking something. And Jesus wants to talk to them about what they're seeking. And if we go back to the beginning of the Gospel of John, do you know what Jesus' first words are in the Gospel of John? Anybody? What are you seeking? That's what he says. It's in 138. He says it to the disciples of John. John the Baptist has been talking. Jesus has been silent now. John the Baptist has disciples. And Jesus walks by and John says, you know this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then this couple of his disciples get up and they say, well, that must be who we need to go see. And so they follow Jesus. And he turns around and he says, what are you seeking? If you think about the question, it's a penetrating one. What do you want? It has the ability to blow in the wrong context right by the sort of mores of social acceptability. You know, some of you, I'm, I'm so new to the church, I don't know everybody here, but some of you we've not met before. If I go up and I say, tell me your deep desires. Are you going to want to get coffee? Probably not. Um, maybe you will. I hope so. Um, but the point is that it, it is an invasive question, isn't it? What are you seeking? What do you want, really? The, disciple, the disciples of John, interestingly, don't have a direct answer to this. Maybe they're not ready. Maybe they don't even quite know. And so they say, where, where are you staying, Rabbi? And Jesus is okay enough with that answer. Come and see. Come in. Know me better. The seeking happens multiple times in the Gospel of John. It's not an accident. In John 3, Nicodemus, the teacher, comes to Jesus, the teacher in the night, with some questions about the kingdom of God. He's a teacher, but he's got questions. And Jesus gives him a lesson. In John 4, there's a woman from Samaria who goes to a well in the middle of the day at noon, seeking water, seeking maybe some quiet solitude. And she meets a man there, Jesus, who talks to her about what she's seeking and offers to give not water but living water and says, as she herself goes on to say, everything that's been going on in her life. He reframes her story and puts himself right at the center of it. She's seeking something, she's not quite sure what, and she finds it unexpectedly. So by the time we get to John 6, the same idea is present, but we're now talking about bread. There are people who have been fed bread miraculously, and then they cross the water, a large lake, in order to get to Jesus because they're still seeking something. They've tasted that 
provision of food for the needy that would become part of the church's social mission all through the ages, as we read about at least initially in the book of Acts, providing bread for the hungry. But that's not enough for them. There is some sort of something that draws them farther. And Jesus wants to speak to that. And what he has to say, we've been hearing over and over in the lectionary, and you heard it at the beginning of the reading this morning, I am the bread of life. You're seeking bread, but your search is actually a search for me. I am true life. My words are eternal life, but also I myself in my flesh and blood are the life that you are deeply searching for. Kind of a shocking statement, isn't it? Quite a lot of self-focus in that statement. A lot of particular energy directed towards the person of Jesus as the end, the telos, the goal, the climax of the search. Well, Jesus wasn't the first person to talk about bread in the wilderness. The first, he wasn't the first to give bread in the wilderness, was he? If you know the story of Israel... In the book of Exodus, you know that when God rescued for himself a people who were enslaved in the land of Egypt and carried them through the wilderness, he provided miraculously for them in the desert with bread from heaven, which they called manna, which means in Hebrew, what is it? Because they had never seen such a thing before. They were hungry, and God fed them. What do you think the experience of being hungry and having to depend on God for provision would be like. Maybe some of you know some manifestation of this in your life. Listen to what Deuteronomy 8.3 says about what this means. Your God humbled you, and he made you hungry, and he fed you with manna that you did not know, nor did your fathers know. In order to teach you, in order to teach you, that human being does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Provision of manna in the Old Testament, in the desert, in ancient Israel, in the wilderness, was meant to instruct. The experience of hunger and provision was meant to say something about humankind's dependence upon God as their ultimate goal. The bread had a metaphorical, or even maybe perhaps a sacramental character then. And it's interesting that in Jewish exegesis, Jewish interpretation of the manna, Jewish exegetes recognize the connection between manna and God's instruction, God's Torah. And so Israel, who had received God's law and was on long pilgrimage to see God finally face to face, was like, even in the, once established in the land, was like Israel in the wilderness dependent daily upon God for our daily bread. It's interesting, isn't it? If you remember the story of the manna, you remember that it was good for a day, but if you, you couldn't gather too much of it because it would decay and go bad. It's like that with bread that we actually bake today, isn't it? When's the time that it's best to eat bread? It's fresh out of the oven, right? As soon as it's fresh out of the oven, it's good. That smell, there's nothing like it. It was in our house this morning. Tasha was making bread. Um, there's nothing like it. But a day later, 
It's, it's discounted at the store, isn't it? Yeah, there's a reason. It starts to decay as soon as it's ready. Kind of like us. We're sort of best when we're first born, aren't we? And then, or maybe some age when we peak. Uh, and then from there, it's a decline. We're always with one foot in the grave. Bread's a good symbol, then, of our life. It's the thing that we eat daily. It's sort of this elemental human food. Give us, to this day, our daily bread. It's elemental human sustenance. And yet, it's the image of decay. It just reminds us over and over that if we don't get some today or tomorrow, we might be in a bad way. It reminds me a little bit of what the author to Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews, says about the Old Testament sacrificial system. The very fact that the sacrifices have to be offered over and over shows that each one is not fully sufficient to do what needs to be done. And so we are a hungry people, always sort of calculating, planning how to make sure our next meal is going to be met. This is the human condition, I think. And what is Jesus' answer to it? What does he have to say to us about it? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. It's a promise with two parts. The last part, I will raise them up on the last day. That death, this thing which we try to forget about, which is always just around the bend, that it will not have the last word. That the life of Jesus is able to overcome our death just as it did overcome his own death. That we will be raised up at the last day. But the other part of this promise is that whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life in them now. On the journey, on the way, there is enough. And it is life. That thing for which you're longing, that thing for which you're hoping, the security for which you are trying to figure out what in your life you can rearrange to get it to meet that need. Jesus is saying, my, it's me, it's my flesh, my blood, my life within you. What Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. But it sounds like cannibalism, doesn't it? Yeah? It's weird. Christians believe a weird thing. Um, that eating and drinking Jesus' body and blood and is feeding on him is enough and will carry us all the way. You notice that his disciples aren't all jazzed about this. You know, maybe it's because he's gone on for so long about this, or I'm not exactly sure why, but they say, this is a hard teaching. Who can listen to it? It's a hard teaching. Who can listen to this? You can understand. There's a radical self-focus here. There's a particularity. It's my body, not just anybody's body, not just good teaching, my words are eternal life. And so many of them leave. Maybe you're aware of this sort of experience. There's lots of reasons to leave the Christian faith. It happens a lot. Jesus watches it happen. 
And then he comes to his inner circle, his 12. And he says to them what I think he says also to you and me. Do you also want to go away? You too? Do you also want to go away? They had options. Jesus wasn't the only rabbi in town. There was more than one way to serve the God of Israel in the first century. And there were lots more ways to lay down your life at a pagan temple or to pursue the pleasures of life in the Greco-Roman world. There were lots of ways to live. But what is Peter's response? It's the response of faith, the response of the church. Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? Maybe he's thought it through. Maybe he is just aware that the one in front of him is the one that he has to stay with. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Notice what Peter doesn't say. He doesn't say, uh, no, Lord, your, bread is, your body is the true bread and your blood is the true wine. That's what you said. I believe it. I believe in the real presence or transubstantiation or whatever it is we're supposed to believe. Um, whatever you're saying, Jesus, I'm right on track with it. He doesn't say that. He probably has absolutely no idea what Jesus is talking about. His trust is more elemental. It's more basic. It's more grounded. Whatever you're saying, Jesus, I'm trusting you. Where, where else can I go? I've come to know that you are the one. And that kind of faith is sufficient. That is the nature of faith in the midst of controversy, in the midst of unsettled questions, in the midst of deep mystery. Also in the midst of deep brokenness and difficulty. I haven't talked to every one of you, but I doubt very many of you came this morning with, because you're up in arms about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. It's probably not your, your issue. It was an issue in the story. It's probably not your issue. But you may have, I trust you do, other issues. Other things that when you hear them read or said are hard teachings. There may be people that you have looked up to that were supposed to embody the faith or public leaders that purported to embody the Christian faith. And based on their way of life, you say, this is a hard is a hard example. Who can really hold to this thing anymore? Is it, if this is what it amount, amounts to, then why the heck should we even have anything to do with it? And either you yourself feel pulled away or you know others who have walked away. It's not possible to speak to the depth of despair, the depth of difficulty the manifold struggles of this life that lead somebody to say, I don't know that I can hold on to this hope. How am I supposed to explain this, this question, this answer that seems insufficient? I think what Peter's faith points us to is a basic and deep conviction that Jesus is sufficient for these questions, for these problems. His question, you don't want to also go away, do you? Is also an invitation to remain, to stay with me, to come. So that's his word to us. Amen.